0: So for those online and for those of you who are here, we're starting a new sermon series, Romans nine one one, one And we are very excited about this new series. We'll be walking through chapters 9 through 11 of Romans. And today we begin in Romans 9, 1 through 5. And Emmy will read the scriptures for us. Emmy. <clears throat> I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Thank you, Emmy. Let's stand for prayer. So father we do thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word and most fully in Jesus as we come before you this morning father we remember that often we we do stray and we do not live according to the wisdom of your word we ask for your forgiveness it is only by your grace That we've been drawn to you it's only by your grace that we come to an understanding of your word and so we ask for that grace over our lives today lord help us to understand romans 9 1 through 5 and not just understand the meaning for the believers of the first century but understand the meaning of these words for us today that we might live in light of them for your glory in jesus name we pray amen okay you may be seated we uh, all go through significant events Uh, some of them are positive some of them are negative often they change our lives and sometimes it's hard for us to remember what life was like before the marker event I don't know if you've been to the airport Lately trying to get on a flight, but if you have been then you probably went through an experience something like this You know you put your luggage On the on the belt and uh, it was x-rayed and maybe as you got to the other end of the line And you were waiting for your baggage to come it got diverted (laughs) And uh, someone came up to you and said sir or madam is this your bag? and uh you know, the security official opens it up and pulls out some shep- shampoo. Oh, no, over 100 mil. Some gel. Oh, no, over 100 mil. Tube of toothpaste over 100 mil is like, oh, and it's all gone. Where does all of that stuff go anyways? And you think, oh, no, and another trip with dirty hair and bad breath. And then maybe the person asks you this question so, did you pack your bags? <laughs> no, my neighbor. I'm always tempted to say that. <laughs> my neighbor, and he's dangerous. <laughs> of course, we don't say that because that would disrupt our flight. What's behind the security screening? There's an event behind it. Do you remember what life was like before 9 11? Now, if you're, you know, around 25 years of age today, you probably remember the event happening. If you're younger, you may not, but you will have seen images of it. On September 11th, 2001, a hijacked flight struck the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 8.46 a.m. And then 17 minutes later, another hijacked flight hit the South Tower at 9.03 a.m. Where were you when that happened? Do you remember? I was in Prince Rupert. I was in Prince Rupert with my family, and we were in a restaurant, and I remember watching the images on the TV screen, and I thought, are those fake images? That can't be happening. I remembered being at the top of the World Trade Center as a teenager, Could that actually be happening? Consider the ways in which 9-11 have changed our lives. I was talking about security screening at airports. That's one way that our lives have changed. Think about the people that were in those buildings, 290. 2,977 people lost their lives. The greatest single loss of life uh, on American soil due to foreign attack. 441 first responders lost their lives. The greatest loss of first responders on a single day in American history. Tragic event. In 2015, we had a men's event here at Willingdon, and uh, our guest speaker was Brian Clark. And on September 11th, 2001, he was above uh, floor 84 on the South Tower. So, the, the hijacked flight hit the 84th floor. He was above that, uh, that zone. Only four people survived that were above floor 84 on that day. He was one of them. And he told the story of how God, he sensed God's hand on his life. He and another uh, colleague, they found their way to a staircase and, and wound all the way down to the bottom. And two minutes after they left the building, the South Tower collapsed. So, a tragic, tragic event, but even in the midst of that tragedy, God in his sovereignty was at work. Tragic moment. People's lives changed forever. We didn't talk a lot about terrorism before 9 11, we didn't live with an awareness of that threat. But because of 9-11, there's increased data surveillance. We kind of live with that now, and it makes us feel a little uncomfortable, but it is what happens every day. There's a coordination of intelligence gathering around the world uh, so different from what was happening prior to 9-11. The military response of America, of course, to the 9-11 attack was the war in Iraq and then the war in Afghanistan, and that had a destabilizing impact on the Middle East and the North Africa region, and we feel the impact of that to this day. 9-11 caused widespread anxiety and fear and depression. Many people felt that they were insecure, unsafe. Could that kind of a terrorist attack happen just anywhere? Many millennials who were between the ages of 5 and 24 on that day, they referred to 9-11 as a defining moment in their gen- for their generation. And it didn't just impact them. It impacted all generations. 9-11 has had a, a lasting impact on the world. And it's really hard for us to go back and imagine what life was like before 9 11. Before there were security checks at airports. It's actually hard for me to remember that. Just walking onto airplanes. To live without data surveillance. Without thinking about who's tracking my smartphone. To live without the awareness of terrorism. And all of the anxiety that all of this engenders, hard to go back. If it's hard for us to imagine what life was like before 9-11, it's probably even harder for us to go back to the first century, to first century Israel, to the Roman Empire at that time, and to talk about an an event that was actually much more impactful, much more far-reaching than 9-11, the coming of Jesus Christ. Judaism was forever changed. World history was changed. Sometimes it's hard for us to go back to a text like Romans 9 and really enter into the story of that moment and what people were feeling, the questions that they were asking. Let's go back to the time when Jesus had just risen from the dead and the Holy Spirit was descending on believers, had descended at Pentecost, And the church was growing day by day in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, even all the way to Rome. (laughs) And there was tension in these churches in Rome. Paul had not founded these churches. These churches were most likely begun by Jewish Christians returning to Rome from those Pentecost celebrations in Jerusalem. We read about that in Acts chapter 2. And for the first few decades of the existence of these churches, they were primarily Jewish. And the Jewish Christians felt very much at home in these churches. But then in A.D. 49, the Roman emperor Claudius, he expelled all Jews from Rome, including Christians. And in the absence of the Jews, the Gentiles started to enter the church more and more Gentiles were being added. And if you've ever been in a church that's primarily of one ethnicity and you've lived that experience where people from other ethnicities start to become a part of the church, the composition changes and the people that have been there for a long time, they wonder, okay, what's this church going to look like? What are we losing here? What's changing? What is gospel? What isn't? So this church that was primarily Jewish was becoming more and more Gentile, non-Jew. When Paul writes Romans in uh, AD 57, he most likely writes from Corinth. When he writes the letter, the Roman authorities are quietly allowing Jewish Christians to return to Rome. And they're coming back to a church that has changed so much because now it's dominated by non-Jews, by Gentiles. We can only imagine the tensions, the conversations, the disagreements. You know, the Gentile Christians, these non-Jewish Christians wanting to um, experience all of the freedom that they now had, had in Christ, wanting to move Further and further away from what they found to be, or they considered to be restrictive in Judaism, like holy days and food laws. And and Jewish Christians, you know, asking themselves, okay, are we losing everything here? Are we losing our identity? Are we losing our history? What's going to be left? The way that Jesus had come was so unexpected, and also the impact that his coming had had was so unexpected. Many Gentiles were entering the church, but few Jews were placing their faith in Jesus. Why? Could all of these non-Jews be added to the church without disenfranchising the Jews completely? Would, would Jewish people even want to become a part of a church that was no Gentile? How could a church composed primarily of Gentiles, fulfill God's promises. Could that even happen? So Paul writes this letter, very aware of the tensions in Rome between Jews and Gentiles. Before we dive into Romans 9, let's just review Romans 1 through 8, and this will be cursory. I won't do justice to Romans 1 through 8, but let's just remember a few things. In Romans 1 through 4, Paul... He talks about our human condition. And one thing that he makes very clear is that we are all sinners. Whether we're Jewish or non-Jewish, we are all sinners. And there's only one way to be saved, and that's by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. The only way to be justified before God is by grace through faith in Jesus. Good works will never save any one of us. We will never, on our own, merit salvation. Then in Romans 5 through 8, he turns to our confident hope in Jesus. (laughs) We're in right relationship with God. Jesus has conquered sin and death. We believers, we now have new life through our union with Jesus. And there is, oh, this is such good news. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Jesus has paid it all. And then Paul argues that there's even more reason for confident hope in Jesus because we're no longer living in bondage to sin. In Jesus, there is power to not sin. And God has sent His Holy Spirit to abide in us so that we might have what it takes to overcome sin. Yes, we do sin, but we live a new reality in Jesus. In fact, the Holy Spirit is going to conform us to the image of Jesus. God will continue to be faithful even when we're not. And so we who have been foreknown, uh, chosen, called, justified, we will be glorified. We can be sure of that. Live with that confident hope. Hallelujah. After talking about all of these wonderful truths of what it means to be in Jesus, Paul ends Romans chapter 8 in worship. And he invites all of us to enter into worship with him. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Down to verse 37. No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah! These powerful truths serve as a foundation for our new life in Jesus now and forever. But how do we put together the worship and the exaltation at the end of Romans 8 with Paul's lament in Romans chapter 9. How do we put those two things together? If if the gospel went to the Jews first and God had been preparing them for centuries to receive their Messiah, why had they not received him in mass? Huge question. Had God failed to keep His Word? Had the theological foundations of the Jews been completely shaken, everything that they had understood from the Old Testament? What were God's purposes for Israel now? If you've read through the book of Acts in chapter 9, Luke narrates uh, Paul's dramatic conversion experience. Paul was on the way to Damascus, right? And he was going to Damascus to persecute believers, Christians. And on the road, he, he met the risen Christ. And that dramatic experience of meeting Jesus, it changed his life forever. After his conversion to Jesus, to being a follower of Jesus. He preached the gospel boldly. He went from city to city. But in city to city, the Jewish response was underwhelming. Few Jews put their faith in Jesus. Had Paul been too optimistic? Why was this happening? Now, maybe you can identify with Paul, (laughs) You know, you're you're coming to faith in Jesus. That was a dramatic experience for you. It changed your life forever. And the change is evident, not only to you, but to those around you. And you've shared your faith with, with family, with your brothers and sisters, with your relatives, and with your friends. But they haven't responded to the gospel. And you ask yourself, why? Why do they remain so distant, so hardened? The central issue in Romans 9 through 11 is God's integrity. And who are we to question God's integrity? But that is the central issue. Can God be trusted or not? Not. If God's Old Testament promises to Israel were not fulfilled, then how can believers in Jesus trust God's promises listed in Romans 1 through 8? So in these chapters, Paul is going to talk about really big themes that were really important for the early church and are just as important for us today. He's going to talk about, on the one hand, God's sovereign choosing. He's going to talk about how God will accomplish his purposes, no matter what. And on the other hand, he's going to talk about human responsibility in deciding to follow Jesus. The opportunity is given to Jews and Gentiles. And these two, God's sovereignty and human responsibility must always be kept in tension. He's going to talk about the inclusion of the Gentiles. He's going to talk about the future salvation of Israel. The central theme is this God is faithful. He can be trusted. He will keep his word. That's the central thesis. So let's dive into Romans chapter 9, verse 1. After this, the moment of, of Easter like worship, of joyful worship that we just read at the end of Romans 8, Paul enters into lament. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Look at the way the emotion builds through these double expressions in these verses. Here you see Paul's lament. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. In Christ, in the Holy Spirit, great sorrow, unceasing anguish, accursed, cut off from Christ. My brothers, my kinsmen, the emotion builds. You see, the Jewish rejection of Jesus, their Messiah, is not just an intellectual problem for Paul. (laughs) He's in anguish. He's in pain, he's grieving. This is his family. These are his brothers and sisters. He's like the Old Testament prophets. We might consider Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter four, four, verse 19. Jeremiah, this is what he writes when he considers what his Jewish people are doing in his day. My anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent. For I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. He knows that judgment is coming. And he writes down the words of God, For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good? They know not. Paul's like Jeremiah. And if anyone doubts it, he calls forth two witnesses. Again, back to Romans 9.1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. say, if you have any doubts, if you're suspicious of my commitment to my people, I call forth Jesus. I'm united with him. He is the truth. And secondly, my conscience bears witness. And my conscience is under the control of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. So I call forth two witnesses, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. If you have any doubts at all, these are my witnesses. They testify to my truthfulness here. I am in a state of lament. Why? Because if my Jewish brothers and sisters do not accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they're lost. They're accursed. They are not saved. Now, it's good to grieve, but we must also pray. Look at what Paul writes in Romans 9, 10, 10, verse 1. Romans 10, 1. Brothers, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He wants nothing more than to see his Jewish brothers and sisters saved. That's why he grieves. That's why he prays. And perhaps you can identify with Paul's pain here because you have been grieving and you have been praying for your brothers and sisters. You've been praying for your family. You've been praying for your children, for your grandparents. You've been praying for them for a long time, weeping as you've prayed sharing your faith with them, loving them in every way, you could not be more devoted to their salvation. But as yet, little response. Paul's burden is so profound that he writes this, verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's like Moses here. Moses was so devoted to the people of Israel. When God threatened to destroy Israel after Israel had worshiped a golden calf, God had just rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, and Israel had committed idolatry. And Moses puts himself in the gap and he says, Well, I'm going to read the text. (laughs) Here it is Exodus 32, verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps I can. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. So Moses is pleading for Israel's forgiveness. And he dares to ask God to blot him out of the book of life, if that in any way will atone for Israel's sin. Paul's like Moses here in Romans 9. He says that he he would be willing to be damned, to be accursed, to be separated from Christ uh, forever, if somehow that sacrifice of his might save Israel now that's devotion remember Paul's testimony Philippians chapter 3 he says hey I've lost everything I counted all loss in order to gain Christ I've given it all up so that I might gain Jesus Because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Jesus is everything. And here he says, I'd be willing even to be separated from Jesus if that would save my brothers and sisters. That's devotion. You know, sometimes I hear people saying, you know, children say, I I would do anything for the salvation of my parents. I'd do anything. And as parents, you know, we, we say, I would do anything for my children to come to faith in Jesus. Anything. It's in our veins. We, a day doesn't pass without us thinking about it. If only, if only, if there was a sacrifice that I could make to bring them to faith, I would gladly do it. I would do anything to see my friends come to faith in Jesus. Now, Paul, he doesn't have a theological problem here. He knows very well that the only sacrifice that will atone for anyone's sin is the sacrifice of Jesus himself. He knows that. He also knows that he cannot be separated from Christ. He wrote about that at the end of Romans 8. But he's trying to put into language his devotion, what he would be willing to do, and it's really good to be devoted. If you're devoted to the salvation of those you love, it's really good. But there's only one who saves, and that's Jesus. And we need to remember that. It's good to be devoted, but there's only one who saves, and it's Jesus. No matter how connected we are with family, no matter how connected we are with our children or our parents or our grandparents, no matter how much we would be willing to sacrifice for their salvation, we need to remember that only Jesus saves. Amen. Now, Paul's a follower of Jesus, and just because he's a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that he's disconnected from his family or disconnected from his ethnicity, disconnected from his nation. No. With his Jewish brothers and sisters, he has shared thousands of years of spiritual heritage. He writes in Romans 9 verse 4, they are Israelites, and this is important. He doesn't write they are Jews. It was the Gentiles, the non-Jews, who referred to the Israelites as Jews. The Israelites referred to themselves as Israelites, people of Israel, God's chosen people. That's what it meant for them. So Paul here, he's emphasizing that the people of Israel are unique, that they have received special privileges. And he lists them in Romans 9, 4 through 5. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. It talks about eight advantages that the people of Israel have have received, unique to them. And we can make two lists, four couplets. In the way that Paul writes this, uh, we come to the understanding that the meaning is actually found in the whole, and so adoption in the law, glory and worship, covenants and promises, patriarchs and the Messiah. Let's begin with adoption and the law. This couplet, it reaches back to the to the Exodus. And so the Israelites, they became God's people when God saved them from slavery in Egypt, brought them out, and then revealed himself through the giving of the law at Mount Sinai through Moses. They were chosen from among all the nations of the earth not because they were so great but because God was so gracious and compassionate and he wanted Israel to be his treasured possession his prized possession it's personal for God God said this about Israel Israel is my firstborn son and I'm Israel's father he chose them he adopted them he gave them the law His will revealed to them through his voice, written with his finger, personal. The second couplet, glory in worship. As God's chosen people, the people of Israel had the joy, the wonder of God's glorious presence among them. God's presence came upon the tabernacle, filled the temple at the dedication of Solomon's temple, Personal presence. To them belonged the worship, the sacrifices, the festivals. But the third couplet covenants and promises. God made covenants with the people of Israel through Abraham, through Moses, through David. God, through those covenants, entered into a personal, bonded relationship with Israel. Israel received the promised. Blessings and and the promise that they would be a blessing to all nations, and that through them the Messiah would come—that was unique to Israel. They had received so much. The patriarchs, in Romans eleven verse twenty-eight, Paul will write that the people of Israel were loved were loved on account of the patriarchs. Abraham, Jay, Isaac, and Jacob belonged to Israel, to no one else. They'd received so many promises. And if that were not enough, the Messiah himself, Jesus, through their lineage, the promised one. If the patriarchs had inaugurated, begun Israel's history, then Jesus was the consummation of it all. He was the fulfillment of Israel's destiny. Jesus was their Messiah. He came to his own. For Jesus, it was personal. He loved his people. He wept over Jerusalem. You know, when we look at the way that Paul talks about these eight advantages that the the people of Israel have received, I don't think there would be a better way to describe in a few words all that Israel had received. Spiritual heritage. Now, it's good to have spiritual heritage. It really is. But faith in Jesus is essential. Spiritual heritage is a great blessing, but it's never enough. And being a follower of Jesus is not about just having spiritual heritage. It's about having a personal relationship with Jesus. And of course, here's the great tragedy that Paul is writing about. The people of Israel had received so much. They could have continued to live in light of their spiritual heritage, embrace their Messiah, but instead they rejected him. At least most Jews did. And as we read through the book of Romans we see that you know those eight advantages that Israel received they're actually now applied to all followers of Jesus. It all comes up in Romans 1 through 8. And so just as it comes up in Romans 1 through 8 it's going to come up on the screen. There it is. These are the eight advantages of all disciples. Adoption as children of God the law written on their hearts, the glory of the Spirit's presence in their lives, spiritual worship as they place themselves on the altar and worship God with their lives, Romans 12. They enter into new covenant in Jesus. All of the promises are fulfilled in Christ. They're now sons and daughters of Abraham. They have Jesus, the Messiah, as their Savior and Lord. So, of course, the Jews were asking themselves, okay, what belongs to us still? Jesus was never limited by Israel. He was never controlled by Israel. He was always much more than the patriarchs, much more than the the history of Israel. Jesus was God's means of salvation for the Jews, yes, but for the whole world. He could never be claimed exclusively by one people group. He was always much more than a Jewish human being. Look at what Paul writes at the end of verse 5. Jesus is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. He's fully God, reigning over all things. Paul writes this in Colossians 2 verse 9, If anyone should doubt, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity. So Jesus came, the promised Messiah. And what is so stunning is that the Jewish people have been unable to understand the fact that Jesus has come for their salvation and the salvation of the world. That through Jesus, the promises made to Abraham, their great forefather, are being fulfilled in their day. And it's not just for them, it's for us. All people this is the reality and it causes pain Paul much pain and that's maybe where you are today you're like Paul you're in pain Because you have prayed for family and friends. And you do consider their spiritual heritage. And you you remember how they were instructed in the gospel. And you remember how they were loved by the church family. And you remember all of the reasons that God has given them to know Jesus and to follow him. Yet they remain resistant. You don't understand. About four years ago, Uh, a high school friend of mine called me, just kind of out of the blue. And I should give you some background to the phone call. We were best friends in high school, and after high school, we went in very different directions. Uh, One thing that happened was that I became a follower of Jesus, and then I went off to college and seminary, and I became a missionary in Brazil. And he went off to university and studied economics, And he entered the world of business and did very, very well in business, very successfully. He was doing business in Canada and in the States and in, you know, South America and in Southeast Asia and in Europe, all over the place. Great success. I was following Jesus and uh, along the way, even though he had some Christian background, he was exploring Buddhism. And... For many years, he said to me, "Um, Please don't talk to me about Jesus. I remember him saying to me one time, You know, Ray, one of the good things about our friendship, I'm a Buddhist and you're a Christian, and we don't have to talk about that. And I'm like, No, I really would like to talk about that. But I couldn't even say the name Jesus to him. And I knew that he had distanced himself from anyone that had tried so I I, I prayed for him others prayed for him and there was a moment when I, I said to my wife you know my friend he is so hard I have no idea how he could ever come to faith in Jesus I just so four years ago he calls me how are you doing brother and I'm like that is so weird. Why is he calling me brother? And then he says, uh, Ray, I just became a follower of Jesus. I'm like, I'm not sure what to do with that because I haven't been able to mention the name Jesus to him for decades. So I just kind of blurt out, why? (laughs) Why would you ever do that? And he said, it's not because I'm going through some financial crisis. It's just that I just couldn't do life on my own anymore. And so I've decided to, to follow Jesus. You know, sometimes we pray for a long time. And those people that we're praying for, it just appears that their hearts are so hard and nothing is happening And and we don't understand how they will ever come to faith. But we don't need to understand. Because God does. And that's what's important. God understands. And our participation is just to keep praying. You know, there were times along the way when I just wanted to share my journey with my friend. He was my friend. So when my, my wife was diagnosed with cancer a few times you know, I, I called him, and I wanted to talk to him about what Jesus was doing in my life, in in my wife's life, in our family, and I couldn't talk about it. All he wanted to talk about was treatment. I says Ray, I, there's, "There's this cutting edge treatment in San Francisco. You know, George Harrison has, care, has cancer, and he just went there. I'll pay for it. You can go. Your your wife can go there." And I thought, no, that's good. But I really wish <laughs> that I could talk to you about Jesus. I really wish I could talk to you about what really matters. I wish you could hear my wife's story. I really do. But he was just hard. And maybe that's you today, you, you know, you, you walk with your your brothers and sisters, your parents, your children, your grandparents, your friends, and you say, man, I wish I could tell them everything that God is doing in my life, everything that excites me, everything that is so real for me. I wish I could share it, but they're just hard. They won't let me say a word. Well, if that is where you are, just keep on praying. God is so much bigger than we are. He's sovereign over all things. God knows the journey of each one. And he's able to draw people to himself. Not all Jews came to faith in Jesus because Paul prayed. Not all people come to faith in Jesus because we pray. But we can pray. And we can trust God. As we pray and worship, we begin to see who God is more clearly. And as we do that, we're filled with hope. We see ourselves differently. We see the people around us differently. And so we pray, we worship. And the way that we can join God in in what He's doing, even when we don't see what He's doing, is through prayer. God invites us to pray, urges us to pray. And that's why we're going to come together this Wednesday to pray. Because I'm sure that if in this moment I asked you who are here, hey, if you've got a family member that you're praying for, or a friend, or a colleague, I think all of you would stand. We're all praying for someone. And one of the gifts of being in the church family is that we can pray for one another. So we'll come together on Wednesday for the prayer summit. We will worship. We will pray. We'll pray to the only one who can draw people to himself, Almighty God. We may shed some tears, but we'll do that knowing that God remembers our prayers. And as Psalm 76 says, he gathers up our tears in a bottle. The Lord does not forget. He is at work, even if we don't see it. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over all things. It is actually very good that you are sovereign and we are not, that you are the all-powerful one, the all-knowing one, the all-present one. And in this moment, we humbly come before you, and again, we, we entrust ourselves to you and we, we pray for those we love. Oh, God, we pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would find New life in you. That they would humble themselves before you and turn from their independence, from their own ways, and accept you, Jesus, as the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Lord, we trust you for that. We pray for that. And I pray, Lord, that my brothers and sisters, that as they pray, that they would not be discouraged. Even though we grieve, Lord, may we not despair. May we continue to walk with the confident hope that you have graced our lives with. This hope that is sure in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, One of the things that you can pick up on the way out is this uh, brochure written by some of our staff. It's a devotional guide for this week. Prayer. Wellspring for evangelism. You can pick that up on the way out. Uh, We'll see you Wednesday night. Here's some questions for your reflection.